Friends, let me explain what I want to try and do today. I want to try and say something about uh, the, the, the book itself, uh, Ceremony and, and Celebration, is about the major festivals and uh, is a collection of the prefaces I've done for each of the Marxarium. So what I want to do tonight is say something I haven't said before. And I want to explain what I'm going to try and do. I'm always trying to look at the big picture. You know, um, not just what and how, but why. Why do we do the things we do? And can we see the forest, not just the trees? And sometimes I try and do something which is like a literary equivalent of being an archaeologist. Can you dig just beneath the surface of the text to find something extraordinary, unexpected, and very beautiful that you never saw before because you were just looking at the surface. And I want to do that in relation to uh, Rosh Hashanah itself. And we will see that if we peel back the layers of the texts, we will see something extraordinary and remarkable, a drama that happened in Jewish history at a particular time in Jewish history that I regard as personally, spiritually, and philosophically one of the most remarkable things in the entire history of Judaism. And it's there lying covered just beneath the surface. And let's do it. And let's begin at the beginning, the simple stuff first. What does Rosh Hashanah commemorate? Okay? We know what Pesach commemorates, Exodus from Egypt, Shavuos, giving of the Torah, Sukkot, 40 years in the wilderness. What does Yom Kippur commemorate? Anyone know? No, no. Yom Kippur represents the first great plea for forgiveness and atonement in the history of the Jewish people. Anyone know what was the big, first big collective sin? The golden calf, exactly. And Moshe Rabbeinu goes up the mountain and prays to God 40 days, 40 nights, and all the rest of it. And eventually God forgives the people and says to Moses, you, I will give you a new set of tablets to replace, you know, Moses and the tablets a tiny bit like me and doing the washing up at the beginning of our marriage. And so they're all in fragments. And Hashem gives Moshe Rabbeinu Luchotchniot, the second set of tablets. And Moses comes down with these, with these second tablets, the symbol of divine forgiveness, on the 10th of Tishri, which is the date of Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur commemorates the first great moment of sin, atonement, forgiveness in the history of the Jewish people. What historical event, therefore, does Rosh Hashanah commemorate? Pardon? Birth of the world, birth of man. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Let's have a look. Uh, in our prayers we say, Hayom Haras Olam. The universe, the, today the universe was born. But in fact, if you look carefully at source one, can you see? It's the underlying, it's the bold-faced and underlying words. Tani Rabbi Yelazar, Be'esrim v'chamisha be'el nivra ha'olam, 
Rabielese told more precisely, Rosh Hashanah was not the Big Bang. It was not the birth of the universe. The universe was created on the 25th of Elul. So on the 1st of Tishri, which is Rosh Hashanah, what happened? The first human being was created on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the creation of humankind. That's simple, that's straightforward. Now, number two, what is the mitzvah on Rosh Hashanah? The Torah tells us very simply, see source two. Can you see the two places in which the mitzvah is given? It is a moment of commemoration or remembrance of teruah, the, the, um, the, the particular sound that we call teruah. And later in Bamidbar, on the first day of the seventh month, it shall be a day of making this sound. So, show on Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah is, called, is not called Rosh Hashanah, not in the Torah, not in Tanakh, it's a late designation, but it is Yom Teruah and Zichron Teruah. Anyone know, is there any reference to Shofar here, by the way, in either of those verses? No. There's a reference only to the sound, not to the instrument that produces the sound. It's teruah, but that doesn't necessarily mean a shofar, because if you look in the Midbar, chapter 10, God commands Moses to make two silver trumpets on which to blow, sometimes a tikiah, to assemble the people, sometimes a teruah, which was a sign that they had to journey on. So we don't know if it's a shofar or if it's a tr silver trumpet. Just think, if it, we got it the other way around, it would all be Louis Armstrong. You never think about that. So how do we know that on Rosh Hashanah you have to blow with a shofar? And the answer is, in source three, there is another reference to Teruah, this time not on Rosh Hashanah but on Yom Kippur. Which Yom Kippur? The Yom Kippur of the Jubilee year. Yeah? And here is the verse, You shall sound with a shofar the teruah, the sound that is called the teruah on the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, on Yom Kippur, you shall cause the sound of the shofar to sound throughout the land. What's the next verse? It's on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Proclaim liberty to the land and their inhabitants thereof. I love the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia because it was made in England and the first time they rang it, it cracked. You know, it's got this wonderful crack there and uh, as the late Leonard Cohen used to say, it's the cracks in the world that let the light in. Anyway, that's another story altogether. Um, and... Uh, so, we now know that on Rosh Hashanah you sound the teruah and you use a shofar. Now, anyone know what that sound was supposed to represent? This is the issue. What does the teruah sounded on a shofar represent? 
I need you to think about this one. This place where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son and God stopped him. Uh-huh. Binding of Isaac. Any other offers? Pardon? God's what? Maybe. Any other offers? Tears. Pardon? Tears? Okay. I want you to focus very carefully. We have very, very clear indication in the book of Psalms as to what a truah sounded on a shofar represents. One of the Psalms is Psalm 47. You remember on Rosh Hashanah morning, before we blow the first notes on the shofar, we say a psalm, Psalm 47. Some say it seven times. I think, what's it say in the Mosul? We all say it seven times. Um, Dan Binstock and I agreed that if not everyone <laughs> follows the same custom, we would write the word some say, but I think they all say it seven times. So here it is in source four. Ki Hashem Elyon Nora, God Most High is awesome. Sorry, having spent four years in America, I know that everything is awesome, but <laughs> especially HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Melech is the great king over all the earth. God has ascended with the Teruah, the sound. But Hashem Bekol Shofar, God has ascended to the sound of the Shofar. Zamra Elohim Zameru, Zamra Lamalkeinu Melechim Melech Elohim Zamru Maskil. God is king over all the earth. Right? Have Sorry, this is a privilege that used to come to Elaine and myself through being Chief Rabbi and Chief Rebenson. You get to meet royalty. As far as I'm concerned, all of you are royalty, but there's this other thing called the House of Windsor. When the Queen is about to enter, what do they do? They sound a clarin. It's what they do when the Queen comes, it's what they do when uh, the Lord Boyer of, of London comes when there's a Lord Mayor's banquet at, uh, at uh, the Guildhall. That's when you sound the proclamation that royalty is about to come. And that is exactly what Psalm 47 is saying. Oh, Kim Bitrua, three times in that quote I've just given you, God is called King, Malkenu, our King, and King over all the earth. And that is what the psalm is. Or you may be, perhaps, more familiar with the psalm we sing every Kabbalah Shabbat. What does it say? Bechatzotzrot. It's there in source 5. Bechatzotzrot with trumpets. Vekol Shofar and the sound of the Shofar. Hariul Ifnei. Hamelech Hashem. God is coming as king and therefore with trumpets and the sound of the shofar, hariu, that means blow it ruah, before God is coming. And why is God coming? Lifnei Hashem kiva lishpot haaretz. He is coming to judge the earth. That's what he does. Beginning on Rosh Hashanah, extending for 10 days, culminating in Yom Kippur, kiva lishpot he is coming to judge the earth. And that is what 
the shofar represented for the whole of the biblical era. It is the sound of God in his role as king, as our king, as king over the world. What is the key word of the prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Hamalak. All of the prayers have that at their center. And what is the Musav on Rosh Hashanah? It's got three central paragraphs, Malchias, Zichronos, and Shavros. Verses about God as king, verses of God reading the records, the Zichronot, the memorial books, telling him what we've been doing in this past year, and the Shofarot, the sound of the Shofar announcing that the king is sitting, Lahavdil Elef Avdolos, where Her Majesty the Queen sits when she gives the Queen's speech in that golden throne in the House of Lords, which is only ever used that once a year. It's a very nice throne. It's, we should all be so lucky, etc., etc. Um, and there it is. The God is here as king, sitting in the throne of judgment, about to judge the earth, and the sign that the court is in session and God is sitting in the throne of justice is the shofarot. That's why the Musaf Amida has the form it has, Malchia, Zichronos, and Shofros. The entire sound of the shofar is the clarion announcing the king is here, the court is in session, and we are being judged. That is what the shofar is about. However, and here is the first discordant note. We now turn to the Talmud. And here is the Talmud. Have you got it? Source 7. Yeah? Sorry. Here, here is the... Sorry. Let, let's have a look at Source 7. Can you see that? Tani Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva is explaining why we do what we do on the various festivals. Why did they do the water drawing festival on Sukkot so that the rain of the year should be blessed? And God says, say before me on Rosh Hashanah, these three central blessings, in order that you recognize me as king, it's a coronation ceremony. And uh, the verse is about memory, so that I will remember you for good. And what? How do you do all this? With the shofar. That is how the shofar was sounded, with those three associations of Malchus, Zichronos, and Shofars. Okay? However, it is now. Um, whoa. Oh. Can you see source six? Who said binding of Isaac? Somebody said binding of Isaac. Yeah? Excellent. I mean, you're 100% you're right. Have a look at source six. Omar Rabbi Abahu. Rabbi Abahu said, Lama Tokim Beshofar Shel Ayo. Why do we sound the ram's horn? The Holy One, blessed be, he said this. Blow before me on a ram's horn so that I should remember for your merit 
the binding of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and I will count it to you as if you had sacrificed yourself to me. Do you hear this? Here is Rabbi Abahu in the Babylonian Talmud connecting the shofar not with God's kingship but with the binding of Isaac. Yeah? Are you with me? It's the first time this idea appears in the Babylonian Talmud. I want to know why. Tell me, did Abraham blow on the shofar? No, it was a ram caught by its horn, right? He didn't blow on it. There was no blowing, there was no teruah. When did the binding of Isaac take place? Well, we, we assume the binding of Isaac took place on Rosh Hashanah. But the earlier sources do not. They don't connect the binding of Isaac with Rosh Hashanah. Truth be told, the book of Jubilees, 2nd century BCE, connects the binding of Isaac with Pesach. So the connection between the binding of Isaac and Rosh Hashanah is not something said anywhere in the whole of Torah, anywhere in the whole of Tanakh. So we, that wasn't a blowing of a horn, that wasn't a sounding of teruah. We don't know that it happened in, on Rosh Hashanah. And that is the first hint that something is going on here that is deeper than superficially meets the eye. God sitting in the guild hall or in the House of Lords or in the Supreme Court judging the universe is a different scenario from Abraham in his lonely trial with his son Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. These are two different scenarios. And it is this Talmudic passage that for the first time connects these two epic events. And this is what should set us wondering. Okay? Are, are you with me? I, I hope you see the difference. These are two really different dramas. They're completely different. And I don't, I need to understand this. And now I want us to understand something really extraordinary. What is the mitzvah of the day? I mean, hang on. Yom Teruah, right? Which sounds like you blow once. Okay? Yom Teruah, you sound a Teruah. How many times do we, in fact, blow the shofar? According to the Routledge Machsa, 42 times. According to other Machsarim, 60 times. Chabadniks and other Hasidim blow it 90 times. And it's become, more recently, our custom to blow it 100 times. And yet the Torah just says Yom Teruah, one blast should suffice. Any idea how we got so many Teruahs? Okay, okay. Let's begin. We're going to do some easy mathematics here, but we're going to hit a drama very soon. Number one, how many references were there to Teruah in the month of Tishri in the Bible, in the Torah? We saw two verses relating to Rosh Hashanah. One verse relating to Yom Kippur. So for the sake of three verses in the Torah, let's blow the Torah three times. Okay? You buy that? Secondly, we're not entirely sure what a Torah is. Some say it's a sigh. Shvarim, three sighs. Others say it's a series of sobs. 
Others say it's a series of sighs followed by a series of sobs. So that's shvarim teruah and shvarim teruah. So we've got now, uh, we've got now, how many are we doing now? Do each of those three times. We're up to 12, yeah? There is a, uh, an oral tradition that every teruah must be preceded and followed by a tekiah, a plain note, just to announce it's coming and it's just gone. So for every, every one of those, we've, so we've got tekiah, shvarim, tekiah, tekiah, shvarim, tekiah, tekiah, which is how many? So we've got 30, okay? 30 is the basic sounding of the show. 30 is the basic sounding of the shofar. That covers all the options. And that, it seems, was the original custom. However, it appears that at a certain point in time, the sages introduced a completely new institution. And they said, instead of blowing these 30 notes once, we are going to blow them twice. Once before the Amida, and once during the repetition of the Amida. That's exactly as we do it, right? So you've got the 30 notes before, when we're, they're called the Tkir de Miushav, we're not yet standing for the Amida. So we're sitting, those are the sitting Tkirs, and then a second time during the reader's repetition of the Amida known as the tekiahs de Mu'umad, the standing tekiahs. So here was a custom to blow 30 notes, and at some point, the sages introduced and doubled it, a second blow. <coughs> and this is source 8. Can you see it? Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak asked the simple question, Lama Tukim Rabbi Yitzchak asked, why do we blow Shofar Roshan? What kind of question is that? Why do we blow Shofar? Because God said blow Shofar, so we blow Shofar. Why do we do the whole lot twice over? That's what Rabbi Yitzchak wanted to know, and this is his answer. Kedei la'arvev ha-satan, to confuse Satan. This is the Talmudic passage that contains within it, as I want to show you, the most extraordinary drama, one of the most extraordinary dramas in the whole of Jewish history. Okay? Are, are you following so far? Now, what is Satan? Anyone know? Pardon? <laughs> Satan in Christianity is the devil, okay, but in Judaism, what is Satan? Prosecuting. The prosecuting council. He's the one who tells Hashem all the bad stuff we've done. He's the counsel for the prosecution. Satan is a lawyer. No, I shouldn't have said that. Nothing. <laughs> On the contrary, not at all, but he's the, he's the counsel for the prosecution. That is what he is. Now, Rabbi Yitzchak has noted that something has changed. 
that we do two complete sets of blind chauffeur and nobody knows why. And he tells us in order to confuse the counsel for the prosecution. Explain to me how blind chauffeur, two, two sets of chauffeur, confuses Satan. I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled here. I mean, he's really so stupid that blowing chauffeur 60 times instead of 30 times throws, throws his day completely. I mean, you know, I mean, this is Clint Eastwood right here. You know, he doesn't get thrown that easily. It's very puzzling. Summary Shunim. Explained very simply. Once the accusing counsel Here's the first chauffeur blowing. He presents his case, and we present our case, and then he leaves. And having left the shul, we come back a second time, and this time present our case without Satan presenting the counsel for the prosecution. That's some Rishonim say this. Ramban says very specifically, that Satan is only allowed to present the case against us once. Whereas we make our plea for mercy to the court twice. So the second time we do so, we do so in the, in the repetition of the Amida, and Satan is not there to countermand anything we say. And that's Ramban, and that too makes sense. The Ravid says something even more powerful. He says, what confuses Satan when Jews say, you know, I did it wrong. It doesn't confuse Satan at all when we blame somebody else. But when we blame ourselves, that induces humility, and Satan is powerless against humility. And so when we break our hearts twice, by hearing the sounds that terrify us twice, we get that extra measure of humility that confuses Satan. That is the Rishonim. However, when all the explanations are in, we still ask, was this really enough for the sages at a certain point in Jewish history to take a mitzvah of the Torah and double it? It is strange and mysterious and somewhat mystical and enigmatic to say, is, this is confusing, say. Here, if anywhere, we've sensed that there's something buried underneath. And this is where we start digging. And we're going to start very simply and say this, that with, with, with due respect to the tradition of the devil, where does Satan play a major role in Judaism? The answer is no. Compared to the role Satan plays in Christianity, which is huge. There's a whole book on this, The Devil and the Jews, by Joshua Trachtenberg. And shaitan, the same word, only transposed into Arabic, that shaitan plays in Islam. So compared to the presence of Satan in Christianity and Islam, Satan plays almost no role in the whole of Judaism except in one book of the Torah. Which book is that? It's the book of Job. And this is going to be the key to the entire drama. So let us see how Satan sets the entire story of Job in motion. Do you have it? Oh, where is it? Source 9. 
the day arrived when when the angels presented themselves before the Lord and the Satan, translated here as the adversary, came along with them. And God said to Satan, where have you been? And Satan said, I've been roaming over the earth. And God said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And the adversary, Satan, answered God, doesn't Job have every reason to fear you? You have blessed everything he has. You made him rich. You give him flocks and property and children. You blessed his episode that his possessions spread out in the land. Of course he respects you. You have given him every reason to do so. But now, take away from him what you've given to him, and you will see he will blaspheme to your face. That is what sets the entire 41-chapter drama of Job, one of the most gripping texts in all of religious literature, into motion. God singles out Job as an example of a righteous human being, and Satan, the counsel for the prosecution, not a, a devil, not a diabolic force, just the counsel for the prosecution says, if you're going to single out Job as somebody who loves you and fears you, you really have no sound reason for doing so because he owes everything to you. Take it away and see if he still thanks you and believes in you. How does that passage begin? Can you see the opening words? Vayihi hayom. It's a very, very emphatic statement. The day came to pass. What is the day? It wasn't a day, it was the day. Right? Have a look in source 10. Vayi hayom, there's Rashi. Oto hayom, shaheya Rosh Hashanah. That was Rosh Hashanah. That's Rashi's reading. It's the Midrash reading. It's the Targum reading. Everyone reads it. When did Satan come to uh, report back on humanity? On Rosh Hashanah. So we see there's an early rabbinic tradition that connects the book of Job, which is the only book in which Satan has a major starring part with Rosh Hashanah itself. And now I want to ask you a really, really tough question. Who is on trial in the book of Job? And here I have to apologize for putting forward an interpretation which is different from any of the many, many commentaries that I've read on Job, I may have missed some. You'll find my commentary on Job in a book I wrote called To Heal a Fractured World, in which I say very simply, everyone who reads this book assumes that Job is on trial. I say that whole hypothesis is completely untenable. The book tells us that there is no charge for Job to answer. We know Job is innocent. God knows, Joseph. God knows that Job is innocent. This is no trial. There's no crime of which he's been accused. There's no sin that he has committed. The whole point of the book of Job is Job is an innocent man. Everyone knows this. We know it from the opening of Job. I would not advise you when writing a whodunit to tell us who done it in the opening chapter. This cannot be the drama. 
It is not Job who is on trial. Something else is on trial. What is on trial is a fundamental principle. Remind me, what is Rosh Hashanah the anniversary of? The creation of man. Let me ask you a simple question. Was the creation of man a good idea or not? You might rightly say the jury is still out on that one. And that is precisely how the sages understood it. And this is source 11, and I'm not going to take you through it. You'll read it another time. I, I'm going to paraphrase it. You remember how the story of creation goes. And God said, let there be. And there was. And God saw that it was good. That pattern, God speaks, God speaks and the universe comes into being, exists for every single creation except one. And that is the creation of man. In which God does not say, let there be man, and there was, and God saw that it was good. Instead, he speaks something aloud. And this is what he says. Now, shall we or we shall let us create man in our image and our likeness? Now, there are two problems with that sentence. Number one, why does God reflect out loud before creating, whereas in every other creation, he just goes ahead and creates? Number two, who is the us? There was, at that time, nobody else. And the sages, in a wonderful Agadic passage from the Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin, Davlam Ches, said the following thing. God created a group of angels and said to them, shall we create man? The angel said, could you give us a bit of a hint? as to what kind of things he'll do. So God then played them a kind of, well, you, you know, uh, preview, uh, trailer of human history. And the angel saw this and said, besanisht. Not a good idea. What is man that you created? Don't do it. God then destroyed the angels. He didn't like their answer. God then created a second group of angels. This is all there in Source 11. And they, he asked them the same question. They gave him the same answer. God destroyed the second group of angels. God then created a third group of angels and said, asked them the same question. And the third group said, you created two previous groups of angels. They told you what they thought. Look what happened to them. We're not going to even try. We say to you, the world is yours. Do whatever you like. And should be good. Should be good. Okay? So God then created man. Then came the generation of the flood. 
when the earth was filled with violence and God regretted that he created man God created, regretted that he created man and then he brought a flood and then came the Tower of Babel and they started wanting to storm heaven and the third group of angels said forgive us but we told you so and God replied, and we say this after Alenu, Vadziknani hu vadsevani esbo. I will remain patient until my hairs go grey. You know? Okay, it, may, it didn't look like such a great idea, but I am not giving up. I am not giving up. Are you with me? And this is what is on trial in the book of Job. Satan, the accuser, is saying to God, show me one proof that you were right to create man in the first place. That your creation of the first Rosh Hashanah of all time was justified. Show me one human being who justifies your faith in humanity. And God says, I can show you that human being. His name is Job. He is innocent. He is blameless. And Satan says, that's because you gave him so much. Take it away and see what happens. And God takes it away. Everything he has. And Job argues, maintains his innocence, but doesn't walk. He does not lose his faith in God. He does not lose his faith in the ultimate justice of the universe. And he refuses all the consolation of his friends. He knows that there's something wrong here, but he will not walk. And in the end, of course, God vindicates Job. And in the end, that is what is ma'arvev hasatan, what confuses and ultimately silences Satan, that Job continued to believe in God even after he had lost everything. That is what justified the creation of the first Rosh Hashanah of all time, the creation of what Yuval Harari calls sapiens. And you know how much, if you've read Yuval Harari and Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs and Steel and all the rest of it, how much harm we have done one another and the universe God created. Because everything else in the universe that God created, every planet, every chemical element, every subatomic particle, every life form obeys the laws that God set in motion at creation. We are the only beings in the whole, in almost infinite expanse of space, capable of breaking God's laws and thereby threatening the entire future of life on earth. And therefore the question that Satan asks in the book of Job is a good question. And he has not stopped asking it to this day. But Job finally justifies God's faith in man. Which bit of the Bible is Job in? Ketuvim at the end. Is there anything in the five books of the Torah remotely resembling the story of Job? The binding of Isaac. God has promised Avram, I will make you a great nation. Your children will be like the dust of the earth. He takes Avram outside one night and says, look at the sky. Can you count the stars? If you can, that is how many your children will be. 
And then finally he says, your name will no longer be Avram, but Avraham. Ki Avhamon goyim netatiha, I will make you not a great nation, but the father of many nations. I will give you children. How many children did he have? Two. One called Ishmael, one called Isaac. On the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we read the sending away of Ishmael. On the second day of Rosh Hashanah, we read the binding of Isaac. Every single thing that God had given Abraham that was most precious to him. Don't forget what were the first words of Abraham to God. You know the first words of God to Abraham. What were the first words of Abraham to God? What will you give me if I have, to have no children? This is what mattered most to Abraham and Sarah. And they had children. Ishmael sent him away. Isaac offered him up as a sacrifice. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, and offer him up. This is the trial of Job in the Torah itself. The only difference being that in Avram's case, God said stop, and in Job's case, he didn't say stop. But that is the only difference between them. And Avram Avinu, like Job, never stops having faith in God. He may have had question after question and doubt after doubt, but he never stopped believing. Recall what Satan said about Job. Of course he believes in you. You've given him something. Take it away and see what happens. That is what God did with Avram. Take away his children and see what happens. And Abraham did not walk. He stayed faithful. So just as Job justified God's decision to create man, so did Avram Avinu at the binding of Isaac. And since Rosh Hashanah is the commemoration of the creation of man, that is the connection between Avram and the binding of Isaac and Rosh Hashanah. And that is why Satan figures in Rabbi Yitzchak's explanation for this double blowing, because Satan is the book of Job, and the book of Job is the justification of the creation of man. And now I want you to go back in time to what I said half an hour ago, which sounds like several centuries ago, but I promise you it was only half an hour ago. You remember what we said the shofar was about? It was the clarion announcing the king has come. He's in his court. He's in the throne of justice. He's about to administer justice to all the earth. And where is that most obvious? In Israel itself. Where we say on Avinu Malkenu, Avinu Malkenu, ain't long Malach El we have no king but you. In Israel, God's kingship was manifest. And that is what happened during the whole of the biblical era. Either Israel had no kings, they had Shoftim, they had judges, charismatic military leaders, or they had kings beginning with Saul, David, Solomon. But uniquely, in biblical kingship, biblical kingship is the only kingship of its kind in the ancient world, in the medieval world, until relatively recently, where a king had no legislative powers. Are you with me? A king in Israel had no legislative powers. The only legislator for Israel is Hashem. He gave us the laws. A king has no legislative powers. So even a king in Israel was under the kingship of God. 
So, so long as Israel was a nation in its land and had its independence and its capital and its temple and its king, then we knew God is king over Israel and God, by inference, is king over all the earth. And that was true for the whole of the biblical era. Israel was, as America calls itself today, one nation under God. Everyone knew it. It was straightforward. And that was the situation in the whole of the biblical era, interrupted only by 52 years for the Babylonian exile. And even that exile, God sent prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, telling them they would come back. And for the whole of the biblical period, that is what the shofar was about. God is our king, and he has come to judge the earth. That is all the shofar was about. And then... In the first and second centuries of the Common Era, a whole series of things happened in rapid succession. Number one, the Great Rebellion against Rome. Begun in 66, collapsed in 70 with the destruction of the Second Temple. Then came the rebellion which happened throughout the Jewish world in the year 117, suppressed throughout the Israel and the Diaspora. Then in 132 to 135, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which was suppressed again by the Romans, which led to Jerusalem being leveled and rebuilt as a Roman city, Ilia Capitolina, from which Jews were banned except one day of the year Tisha B'Av. And then came the Hadrianic persecutions. And the Hadrianic persecutions induced a crisis in Jewish faith when it became illegal to practice and life endangering to life to practice Judaism in public. Can you have a look here in source 13? This is a unique statement. Actually, who did the Makorot? You got the page number wrong. It's 60A. It's 60B. It's not 61A. Okay? And from the Mia, look at this. From the day that the wicked kingdom, i.e. Rome, spread and decreed evil and harsh decrees upon us and nullified terror study in the performance of Brig Milao, Pidyon Haben, by rights, din hu, shenigzor al atzmenu shelo lisa yishau lo halibanim v'zimtza zaru shalav ramavinu kolameelav. By rights, said the rabbis, we should issue a decree. There should be no more marriages. There will be no more Jewish children. There should be no more Jewish people in the world. That is what the Talmud says in Gemara and Baba Batra. That is the biggest crisis in the history of Jewish faith. I don't know any statement like this in the whole of Tanakh. The rabbi said, by rights, we should give up right now. And then it says, what can we do? If we told Jews to stop being Jews, nobody would listen to us, so we'll keep them. That's what Gomorrah says. We won't tell them because they won't listen to us anymore. This was a crisis of the most ultimate kind. Jews were the people whose land was given to them by God, whose only king was God, and that kingship was symbolized by the Shofar and Rosh Hashanah. But now Jews had lost everything. They'd lost their freedom, their sovereignty, their land. They'd lost their temple, their priests, and their sacrifices. They lost the service of the coming God all in Yom Kippur. There was no bigger crisis in Jewish faith than this. It is frankly a miracle that Jews and Judaism survived. What do you do when you've lost everything? And it was then, somehow, that the Jewish people created 
an act of reframing that I think is one of the ex most extraordinary things I've ever encountered. Here they are having lost everything. There's a line we say in Ne'ilo, which I find sends shivers down my spine. It says, Ein lanu shiur. Jews get up in shul on the, at the end of Yom Kippur and say, Rabbana Shalom, we've got nothing left. All we've got is this Sefer Torah, your covenant with us. That's all we've got. We've got your words. Nothing else. Nothing else. And suddenly, they realized that actually what had happened to the Jewish people is what happened to Job. Lost everything. The whole Jewish people came like Job. We lost everything. And they suddenly realized that it was precisely when Job was physically, materially in the deepest of pits that he reached the supreme and sublime spiritual heights. Because having lost everything and having no reason to thank God, he stayed faithful. Suddenly they realized that having lost everything, we were on spiritual heights that we could never have had while we were a sovereign people in our land. Because if we stay loyal, we will have reenacted in our lives the book of Job. And not just the book of Job. The story of Avram Avinu, when he almost lost his two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And Jews did lose their children in the Hadrianic persecutions and the suppression of the revolts. Horrendous loss of life. And on Rosh Hashanah, they said we are going to tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu we are still here for him, even if it looks as if he is not still here for us. And it was that faith, the faith that recapitulated the faith of Job and the faith of Avram Avinu, that vindicated God's decision to create man in the first place. Because here was not one rare individual like Abraham or one rare saint like Job, but an entire people who had lost everything and had no reason to thank God, and they were still maintaining their faith in God. And that is why, throughout the whole of the biblical era, when all that mattered, all that was significant, is God's kingship, there was one set of shofar blasts, all of which were pronouncing his kingship. But after the destruction of the temple, and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, and the Hadrianic persecutions, at roughly this precise time, because this second set of tekiahs was instituted either at the very end of the Mishnaic period, according to some Rishonim, or at the beginning of the Amorite period, according to other Rishonim, i.e. Uh, around the late second or early third century. And that was when the sages instituted the second set. And the second set were completely different from the first. Because the first shofar blasts were to announce the sovereignty of God. He is in his throne, and we are in our land. But the second set was the sound of tears. And when God hears those tears, he accounts it as if we had offered up, as if we were Abraham at the binding of Isaac. Completely different shofar blast. The truer of tears, of sighs and sobs. And in those three words, 
When Rabbi Yitzchak asked, how all of a sudden do we stop blowing one set of blasts and blow two? Why do we blow once when we're sitting and once where we're standing in those three words, in order to confuse Satan, the sages were linking the tears of the Jewish people and connecting them all the way back to Job and from him all the way back to Abraham and the binding of Isaac and from that all the way back to the moment when God refused to listen to the angels when they said, don't create man. And God said, I will create man because I have faith that one day human beings will vindicate the faith I had in them. And that is how a people can lose everything and stay loyal to God. And that vindicated God's faith in humankind. Now we have answered all the questions. We now know why the sages in the late second or early third century instituted a whole second set of blind tekiahs. We know why those tekiahs were the sound of tears. We know the deep meaning of la'arvev satan, to answer the accusation of Satan, which is the accusation of the three groups of angels that wrestled with God when he first proposed creating man. We understand the creation, the connection that runs through the book of Job and the binding of Isaac to the day man was created against the doubts of the angels. And we now know how it is that the, from the physical depths the Jewish people reached the ultimate spiritual heights and how the sages rescued a vestige of hope in the darkest night of all of history. And that is the drama that happened around the second, third centuries, that you uncover if you dig just beneath the surface of the Talmud. It's an extraordinary story. I hope it has some resonance to you. But permit me to add one last little chapter. You see, Jews had a tough time of it. In particular, Christians were pretty tough on Jews. There was a lot of hostility in the early church. It's called the Adversus Judeus literature, and a lot of anti-Semitism stems back to those days. And of course, within living memory of some, the Jewish people went through perhaps in some ways an even darker night in the shore. That really was the binding of Isaac. That really was the story of Job. We also know that 20 years after the Shoah, 20 years after the Holocaust, the Catholic Church engaged in profound soul searching. Did we, in some way, partially create this anti-Semitism that runs through Europe? And they issued a declaration, not specifically about Jews, but it had one bit specifically about Jews, called Nostra Aetate, in 1965, 20 years after the Shoah. And that transformed Jewish-Catholic relations. So today we meet as, as friends, not as enemies. However, if you actually read Nostra Aetate, it wasn't that great, to be perfectly honest. It was good, but not great. Nostra Aetate declares the following. The Jews are not a people accursed of God as if that followed from Scripture. Okay, so we're not accursed, guys. We may be obstinate, we may be stupid, we may be wrong-headed, we may be destined for the deepest hell, but we're not 
intrinsically accursed of God. The actual text of Nostra Aetate goes away, but not that far. However, four years ago, Elena and I happened to be in Buenos Aires the day they picked the Catholic Church, picked the Bishop of Buenos Aires to be the next Pope. Some of the Christians there, knowing of my Jewish-Christian relationships, said to me, how did you know there was going to be a vacancy? <laughs> um, we'll let that pass. Anyway, Pope Francis became Pope. An Italian atheist journalist uh, called Dr. Eugenio Scalfari published in the Italian newspaper La Repubblica an open letter to Pope Francis exposing the faults of the church over the centuries. And at the end of his letter, he wasn't Jewish, ended his letter and culminated his letter by referring to the church's treatment of the Jews over the centuries. And in September 2013, four years ago, the Pope replied with another open letter. And I've printed you a paragraph from that reply. Can you see in source 14? He says, at the end of your first article, you also asked me what to say to our Jewish brothers about the promise God made to them. Has this been forgotten? And this, believe me, is a question that radically involves us as Christians. And then the Pope goes through the usual, uh, the usual response of Popes and Catholics, which is to quote chapter 11 of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which says that you know, the covenant still stands. And then he adds some words. I don't know, you know, I was waiting for people to notice these words because they are totally unprecedented in the history of Christianity. I'm not sure that people were reading the small print by that stage, but I think they're worth reciting to you now. Can you see? Through the terrible trials of these past centuries, the Jews have kept their faith in God. And for this, we will never be grateful enough to them as the church, but also as humanity at large. These are radically unprecedented words. They were said four years ago. The accusation, the Satan Amakatre of Christianity accused us <coughs> of many things. But the least thing they accused us of was obstinacy in refusing to recognize the Mashiach, who was one of ours in any case. They got it wrong. They were obstinate. And what they never said, ever, is that actually what the Jews were being was not obstinate, but loyal. Loyal to God. 
The same loyalty that Job showed, the same loyalty that Abraham showed, the loyalty of a people who lost everything but refused to lose faith in God and the covenant he made with the Jewish people at Sinai, the covenant that Moshe Rabbeinu made with our ancestors, renewed by Joshua, renewed again by Josiah, renewed again by Ezra and Nehemiah, renewed again every Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. When we come and say, we have no other king but you. For 2,000 years, having lost everything, we stayed loyal to God, and the accuser said, that's obstinacy. And for the first time in history, a pope has said, no. This is an example to us as Christians, and not just to us as Christians, but to every single human being, that Jews are a role model of what it is to stay loyal to God. This was never said before. And that is Kedela Arvev HaSatan of our time. That accuser and that accusation has been silenced forever. Because this statement, once said and published in public, can never be unsaid. Jews stayed faithful after the destruction of the Second Temple. They stayed faithful after the Holocaust. And that tells us, and it also tells humanity, that a Kodesh Baruch was not wrong in that first Rosh Hashanah of all time, to have faith in humankind, that one day humans would emerge who stayed loyal to God, as God has always stayed loyal to us. Friends, may the sound of the show for this Rosh Hashanah be the only tears we hear in the coming year. And may God write us and the Jewish people and all of humanity in the Book of Life. Amen.